it surprised me. You know, we've always known that that coyotes eat fawns. I wasn't surprised at all to see the occurrence of fawns. I was surprised to see the occurrence of adults, and and in particular in February and March. Hey guys, welcome to the National Deer Association's Deer Season 365 podcast. I'm your host, Brian Grossman, and this week we're going to be talking to Dr. Michael Chamberlain of the University of Georgia all about coyotes. If you're a turkey hunter, you may recognize Dr. Chamberlain's name from some of the turkey research he's been involved in and that he actively shares on social media. Hey, but he's also been involved in some pretty in-depth coyote research as well. So we dive into, you know, some basic biology and ecology of the coyote, as well as the impact that they're having on fawns and adult deer and what we can do as hunters and land managers to help mitigate that impact. So you'll definitely want to stick around for that conversation. But before we get started, this week's episode is brought to you by a relatively new NDA partner, Weatherby. Uh, Weatherby is a manufacturer of quality firearms and ammunition and has been doing so for over 70 years now. To learn more about Weatherby and to see their full lineup of rifles and shotguns, be sure to check them out at weatherby.com. Hey, I also want to remind you guys that the special NDA membership for our podcast listeners is still available. Uh, A lot of you guys have taken advantage of that, and we appreciate your support. If you haven't yet, you can head over to our website at deerassociation.com, click on that Join or Renew link, and use the promo code podcast. That's going to save you $5 off the price of the annual membership. And we're even going to throw in an NDA cap for you as well. So that's a a great deal. Whether you're an existing member or you've never been a member before, you can take advantage of that. And uh, we, again, we certainly appreciate your support. And if you're listening to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, Hey, we would greatly appreciate you taking just a second to give us a five-star rating on those platforms. And if you're specifically listening on Apple Podcasts, hey, we'd also love to hear from you in the form of a written review. Uh, you can you can use that uh, to let us know what you like or, or maybe what you don't like about the podcast, who you'd like us to have on as a guest, or hey, just drop us a word of encouragement. We would We would certainly appreciate that. And uh, hey, we'd love to we'd love to hear from you. Those ratings and reviews help us move up in the podcast rankings so more people can find our podcast when they're searching for for great deer hunting content. So, yeah, if you would just take a moment out of your time to do that for us. And I think, guys, with that, we're going to jump on the phone here with Dr. Michael Chamberlain to talk about coyotes and the impact they're having on whitetail deer populations. Hey, Michael, how are you? I'm doing well. How about yourself? I'm I'm doing good. It's uh finally starting to feel a little like spring out there here in uh, South Georgia, and I I haven't been out listening yet, but I'm I'm pretty sure the the turkeys are probably starting to to gobble on the roost and won't be long. Oh, definitely, definitely. <laughs> they're t- they're talking. That's for sure. Yeah, yeah. It won't be long before we'll be out there chasing them. So uh, all all is good. But hey, we uh, we appreciate you taking time out of your work schedule to to come on here and talk to us a little bit about coyotes and and some of the coyote research that you've been involved in. But uh, before we before we get dive into into that, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself and kind of what what led you down this career path to wildlife research? Yeah, yeah. Um, so I'm a professor at the University of Georgia. I uh, I've been here for about ten years now. I worked in the same capacity for the previous 10 years at, at Louisiana State University. Um, grew up in Virginia, was a was a hunter and still am. Um, and I actually, actually got into doing coyote research when I was a PhD student. Uh, the project I worked on involved looking at coyote movements and behavior as part of a broader project on predation and how it influenced turkeys. But but that's where I got my, you know, dipped my toe in the pool, if you will, with the coyote work. And then after I, I ended up at LSU, I, I got some opportunities to do some coyote research uh, in North Carolina. And then when I came to Georgia, I, I ended up kind of starting a, a fairly comprehensive study across several states that 
that we've kind of dovetailed into another project that we recently completed as well. So I've been, I've been lucky to study coyotes for quite a while. Yeah. And we definitely want to dive into, into that, the whole tri-state coyote project and, and some of that research that you've been, been involved in. Uh, but, but before we do, can you give us a little background on, on the coyote as far as um, it, its biology and ecology kind of, I guess, start out with, the the coyotes native range and kind of how they've how they made their progression uh into the the eastern u.s here and become so prolific yeah i mean coyotes were you know were historically a western species they you know they were kind of um short grass prairie and tall grass prairie and and open environments um and then as you as you started seeing the extirpation of the red wolf and the gray wolf in the Northeast, you know, coyotes essentially had a landscape that was free of competition and they, they started moving eastward. Um, and really, if you look at their colonization of the East, it's pretty remarkable how quickly they moved across the Mississippi river. And then, and are now, you know, inhabit all of the, the Eastern U S um, pretty remarkable animal. Actually, they, when they started moving east, they encountered abundant deer populations. And if you look at the diet of, of coyotes out west, they're mostly a small mammal eater. Um, and if you look at the diets of coyotes in the southeast, they rely heavily on deer. Uh, they're a little bit larger. Uh, their morphology is a little bit different. They've got shorter ears and shorter tails and and they're a little bigger. So that kind of allows them to be, you know, a little better at, at chasing and capturing deer in the, you know, in the forested areas of the Southeast, even though it's pretty different from where, you know, they historically came from. Um, pretty remarkable expansion, honestly. Yeah. You mentioned, you mentioned red wolves there. Kind of what, what did their, their range look like? Um, historically and, and kind of what role did they play the same role that the coyote now plays? Yeah, in many ways they did. They, you know, they were a, a Southeastern species. Um, and basically uh, we think based on what we know historically, they, they preyed heavily on deer, which they still do where they, where they occur. Um, and as the coyote kind of moved into former red wolf range, uh, they encountered red wolves, which they hybridized with. Um, so you still see some pockets of, of areas in the South that have some remaining red wolf genetics, you know, in that, in those populations. But, but yes, I mean, coyotes essentially took over the niche of the red wolf, um, which is an interesting because they're, they're quite a bit smaller than red wolves yet they they have basically become the top predator if you will in in the southeast for sure yeah are there are there still any pure red wolves in the wild now here in the southeast there's there's a, a very few um uh, still uh found in northeastern north carolina and there was there's actually was a, a recent release of a soft release of of a handful i can't recall the exact number but but the you know the red wolf is 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 facing a you know a, certainly a less than certain future. Um, you know we're talking you know a few maybe you know a dozen to twenty some animals that are that are still in the wild. So um, dramatically different than it was a decade ago when there were when there were well over a hundred um, in the wild. So things have things have changed for the red wolf. That's for sure. Yeah. Getting getting back to coyotes, can you walk us through their their breeding cycle? What does that look like? Yeah, it it it's it's wrapping up right now. Actually, you know, coyotes will they they're a monogamous you know breeding pair critter. They they form breeding pairs and they they will breed during late winter and then you know here in a, in the next few weeks and the upcoming say month or month and a half you'll have denning occurring and they'll, they'll produce pups. Um, and then those pups will very quickly, I mean, they grow very quickly and they start exiting the den and, and it's not too long after they, they whelp and everything that they're out and about, um, 
you know, with mom and dad and, um, and then by, by fall, we're seeing, you know, we're seeing those pups that are, are starting to kick off from their natal territories and, uh, they may leave and come back, leave and come back, but eventually they leave and those become either resident coyotes somewhere nearby, or they become transient coyotes that are roaming around looking for territory and, um, and that's kind of the the annual kind of the first year for a coyote. You know, it, it ends up with them being a transient in some way and how long it takes for them to find a home range, you know, is highly variable. And that's kind of what we've seen with our with our GPS data that, you know, that we've collected. Now how many pups will a, a coyote pair average in a litter? It depends. It depends. Um, you know, you you'll often see four or six, um, but but you can see higher numbers and you can see lower numbers. I mean, like in many, you know, in many mammals, it ultimately depends on the, the condition of the female. I mean, it, it can, it can depend on a number of factors and it, it looks like, you know, as you'd expect, pup survival can be pretty variable too, you know, depending on the year and prey availability, but you know, coyotes are really good at their job and, um, and research is, pretty clearly shown that all things being equal, they can maintain pretty high pup survival if, if the conditions allow it like they do in the Southeast. You know, I mean, things are pretty tame environmentally here in the South. So they don't deal with the, the harsher conditions and the lack of prey that they would deal with, you know, say in more Northern areas. Right. Is that litter size? Is it, is it density dependent? I've always, I've always heard. It can be. Yeah, yeah I've can heard be if you, Oh, I'm sorry. No, I was just going to say, yeah. I mean, there's there there've been some studies looking at removal, you know, efforts and how that translates into changes in litter size. And you do see that litter sizes tend to increase when you persecute a coyote population. You know, when you when you go in and try to reduce density, they respond immediately with with increases in litter size, um, which is really interesting. And you know, when you start talking about controlling coyote abundance that's certainly a consideration you have to have to consider you know yeah man i, I guess I'm, I'm asking for for speculation here i guess but how, how, how do you think they how do you think they read that or, or know that you know that that maybe the the density is lower or there's fewer coyotes so you know i, I just wonder how that triggers a, a larger litter size what is well there... you know if you think about it from their perspective they you know they maintain territories space is is important to coyotes um the reason that there can be so many transients for instance in a population is that there are no territories there are no vacant territories so space and the maintenance of space is really important to that critter you know and they maintain space by scent marking and, and howling and uh you know and and directly you know fighting with each other and when they're if you think about it from their perspective, when all of those signs start disappearing, they know that, you know, there's a lack of competition on the landscape. So, you know, reduced population respond by increasing the population. Um, and if you look at coyote spacing that, you know, they, their home ranges look like puzzle pieces. They, they fill in very cleanly fill in the landscape. There'll be some places they don't use. But if you if you if you look at their territories, they do very much in many ways look just like puzzle pieces and they fit, you know, tightly with each other and overlap slightly. So there's not a lot of space out there for a coyote. Um, and, you know, we think that's that's to, to a large degree what's going on. Does the, the population seem to be pretty stable at this point? And I guess I'm mainly speaking kind of in the eastern U.S. here. Or is it still expanding? Well, I think it depends on who you, who you ask. Um, <laughs> in some areas, it still looks like it still looks like there's room for 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 growth. Um, in some areas, it looks like they've reached saturation, and um, and I, I suspect this is just me speaking um, and speculating. I suspect that in most of the Southeast, we've probably reached a saturation where barring any landscape changes, 
which go on all the time, you probably are seeing, you know, some type of stabilization. And, and I even get reports all the time of, of the perception that in some areas they've declined. Um, you know, there've been some changes to force structure or something. And, and I'll be told, you know, I'm not seeing, I'm not seeing the sign that I saw five years ago. And then, you know, the next county over, I'll talk to somebody and they're like, man, I'm, there's a coyote track on every road. There's scat at every intersection. You know, it's crazy. And, and when I start talking to people, one of the common themes that I hear in those situations is they've re- there's been some type of, of clear cutting uh, changes to force structure, something that would benefit a coyote, such as, you know, converting mature forest to more open habitats that can support a lot of prey. So you may go through these peaks and valleys, if you will, through time, where in one year you think, you know, that's, I'm not seeing any more sign than I have been seeing. And then two years later, you know, I'm not seeing as much sign. And then all of a sudden there's a change and you've got, a, you know, a couple of packs that are, or a couple of breeding pairs that all suddenly are in your area and you start seeing a lot more sign. Yeah. You mentioned packs there. That's one thing before we kind of wrapped up the biology part of it, I wanted to touch on. Do do coyotes live and hunt in packs uh, similar to wolves or are they typically no. more loners? No, they they will hunt in, in groups. I mean, you will see, you know, social type foraging, but they don't they don't have packs that have defined structure like wolves do. Um, instead, what you see is a breeding pair of adults and when you see them out and about and there are say four of them together what you're seeing is a breeding pair along with two of their pups you know in that scenario uh rather than say you know an alpha and a beta you know these these very rigid social structures coyotes don't have that right okay well let, let's dive into this the tri-state coyote project that that you've been involved in um how did that come about and kind of what what questions were you guys trying to answer with this project? Yeah, so the the um, the tri-state study was was basically kind of born out of some work that was done in North Carolina, and in that work, we found that there were a significant percentage of the population that was just transient animals; they were nomads, if you will. Um, And that prompted me and some others to start thinking about what does a coyote population actually look like? Like at a very broad scale, what does it look like? Not we're going to go on to this wildlife management area and collar some coyotes and and get a snapshot of their behavior. But across counties, what does it look like? Um, So I I pitched the, the idea to several state agencies and they, you know, and I appreciate this, they agreed to fund a a very broad scale project where each state essentially picked up a percentage of the total cost. And so it ended up with us capturing and GPS collaring coyotes in South Carolina, Georgia, and Alabama across a very, very broad scale through multiple years. You know, we, and we tried to capture uh, everybody we could on these you know, on these sites. So we would go into properties, private properties mostly, and and we would try to pick up breeding adults, but we would also collar, you know, younger coyotes because we were hoping to capture the variation at a population level. And so we did that and we ended up with coyotes scattered across hundreds of square miles. Um, ended up really being interesting in, in, in one way that the South Carolina and the Georgia populations, it, it became very clear to us they were the same population, that coyotes in, in kind of western South Carolina and coyotes in eastern Georgia were just one group of coyotes. They moved back and forth um, across the Savannah River routinely. So we ended up actually collapsing all those into a single population, uh, whereas the Alabama population was kind of isolated on its own. But we didn't really see a tremendous number of differences. Honestly, we, you know, the trends were fairly similar across all of those animals. And I don't recall exactly. I think we, I think we ended up collaring about 160 
um, give or take. And so it was, it ended up being this, you know, spatially, it was the largest coyote study that's been done in the region. And and what were kind of some of the key, I guess, takeaways from the study? Well, like we saw in North Carolina, we, we did see the same trend in that there's a, there's a lot of transient coyotes out there, you know, well over 30%, meaning that of every 10 coyotes that are on, let's say, a property, three of them weren't there yesterday or last week or the month before. They, they were just nomads. And what, you know, again, they're just looking for space. They're waiting for a territory to open up. Um, that was one, you know, key finding. The other thing we found was that um, it was pretty it was pretty easy to identify where coyote territories were going to be. Um, in the densely forested landscape down here, those, those breeding pairs were going, those residents, if you will, they were going to be associated with open areas, early successional habitats. Think forested areas with fields, agricultural fields, pastures. It became very clear that you could kind of take a, a big picture look, on, even on Google Earth, and I could, I could pinpoint with fair certainty these are hot spots for coyote activity. And when we, when we statistically analyzed that, we found that that was the case, that these open areas, uh, whether they're managed or not, just open ground that coyotes can hunt in, that's a very important determinant for where territories are going to be centered. That was a, a second finding. The other thing that really became clear was coyotes are eating a lot of deer. <laughs> Uh, deer were the number one prey source year round. We saw use of fawns as you would expect, but we also saw consistent use of adults in times outside of the hunting season to where you couldn't ascribe it to being scavenging. You know, right. there were, there were no, there were no carcasses laying around. And the other thing that this was one thing that we we teased out because we knew this criticism would arise. These resident these resident groups of these these pairs, they tend to avoid roads, um, and that that makes sense because roads are risky places. Whereas transients tend to select roads and they use those roads to navigate around. So we went into these these resident areas where these resident pairs were living, and we we we. We picked up scat. We assessed their diet. And we found, despite the fact that they avoid roads, they're still subsisting mostly on deer. So that's important because there there was no hunting at times and there was no vehicular traffic that would have allowed roadkill to be there. And they were not eating other things that you would typically associate with roadkill like armadillos and raccoons and opossums. They were not eating them either. So it led us to fairly comfortably say deer is the most important prey source for coyote populations in the regions we studied. Yeah. Yeah. Man, there's, there's a lot I want to dive into there. Uh, I I guess first is these residents and transients kind of, what does that look like as far as, I mean, how big of a territory are we talking about? Like uh, with the resident coyotes, uh, what kind of home range are they living in? And then these transients, how, how far are these transients traveling around? Yeah, the, the residents kind of depended on the landscape, you know, a few square miles to, to much larger than that. Um, we didn't, you, you don't see coyotes just, you know, staying on really small pieces of property. I mean, they have large home ranges even when they have high quality habitat because they, they consume a lot of prey in a, in a year. And and their diet is pretty diverse, even though they they eat a lot of deer and they eat a lot of rabbits. They also eat fruit. So you've got a you know fairly large dog that covers a lot of ground. Um, the transients are are crazy, honestly. But you see movements. Some of them would move 10, 20, 30, 40 miles. Some would move 100 miles. Some would move more. We have records of one transient from North Carolina that was shot actually in South Carolina and the straight line distance was 385 miles. Oh, wow. They, they will cover and can cover a lot of ground and they do that. You know, there's only two outcomes to, to transiency, if, if you will. You're either going to find the territory or you're going to die. 
that that's the two outcomes that are possible. And we saw both scenarios. We we had transients that started moving, you know, out of their natal territory, or we saw a pair get dissolved. You know, one of the pair members was killed and the other one took off and started becoming a transient. And we saw situations where those animals died, where they were shot or trapped or hit by a vehicle or they died of disease or whatever it is. And then we saw a number of instances where they settled down, where they they found the territory and they stopped and they became a resident. And we even saw some situations where a resident would become a transient and then become a resident again um, as they were kind of bouncing around the landscape. So they're, they're, they're an amazing species and they're so adaptable, so adaptable. Yeah. So these transients, it's, it's not that they just prefer a, a nomad lifestyle. They're just strictly out there looking for their own, their own territory to establish them. Yeah. 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 Looking for space, you know, and they, they bide their time and we actually called the areas they settled in biting areas because they're biding their time. And that's kind of what you see the transients do. And, and this is why, this is why quite a number of the coyotes that we kill as, as managers, whether we're trapping or we're shooting them you know, in deer season or whatever, this is why a lot of those animals are transients. The, what they end up doing is they'll move, let's just say 10 miles and they'll bide their time in a small area that kind of looks like a resident home range. And they may stay there for a few weeks and then they move another 10 miles and they'll settle down somewhere where they think they can make it work and they get bounced out by a resident and they go another 10 miles. And then all of a sudden, you know, I'm sitting in my deer stand and I see a coyote come out and I shoot it. That coyote may have been there yesterday. He may have been there last week or he may literally have not been there two hours before. I saw him. It's just, um, it's very unpredictable with transients as to what they're going to do. But again, all they're doing is looking for space. You you mentioned something there about the, the breeding pair, the, the one, the one, one of the breeding pair dying and then the other one becoming a transient. It, do they, is that how coyotes typically behave? If, if one of a breeding pair is killed, will they seek out another, another mate? Not always. Sometimes they just sit put. You know, they just stay put and, and a transient will come, come into that area and settle down with them. That's the more likely scenario. Okay. Um, that they just maintain their home range. And, and if you look at the time it takes for a transient to enter an area, it's not long. We're not talking, you know, months here. You lose a, a breeding pair member and we're talking days before other coyotes are moving through that territory because the, what these transients do is they they move around the edges of resident territories. And you can imagine why. I mean, they they don't want to get their butt kicked. They don't want to get in, in a fight. So they're kind of, you know, keeping their distance, if you will. But they're also smelling those residents. They're, they're checking those same scent marking areas. And when they don't smell, you know, the same sex when they when they think there may be an opportunity they they go looking and try to settle down and that's why we think we see these little biting areas is that you know they they think they may have a a spot here so they spend some time there and then that doesn't work out so they end up moving you know to a different spot man yeah that's fascinating what now what what percentage i guess of the the county population or the the counties that y'all looked at were residents versus transients? We saw over 30% were transients. So okay. think about three out of 10 on, on, you know, on average, three out of 10 are just moving through when we encounter them. Um, we saw some differences across the landscape. Actually, we, we did see in some places and we're not sure why that there were there were a greater percentage of transients than in other places, but if you just look across the populations at large, it was it was about a third. Okay, and it sounds like from what you've described there, as far as the residents, is there very little overlap in home ranges? Or yeah, yeah, they they maintain pretty exclusive home ranges. Gotcha. Yeah, they don't they don't overlap a lot. What it it sounds like he's the transient counties are constantly. Um, you know, tra- transitioning is uh, to residents as the, those voids open up. Um, 
but you mentioned there, I guess the, the opposite can occur as well. Occasionally you did, you would see some, some residents actually suddenly becoming transient. What, what would prompt that, I guess? Well, in some cases it was, it was that scenario where, you know, they, they lost a pair member. Right. Um, in some situations, we don't know what happened. They just took off. One can only assume what happened. We will never know, but there were some instances where we just had a, a resident that for whatever reason had been a resident for, or let's, you know, let's just say six months and all of a sudden they were on the move and they'd move 50 miles and, and settle back down again. Uh, what prompted it is, is unclear. Gotcha. Well, let's, let's dive in a little bit to the, to the diet part of this. Um, I guess, so did you guys actually, how did you go about, I guess, determining the diets of these coyotes? Would, would you just, when one got killed, would you examine it or, or how did you, how did you go about doing that? Yeah, no. So what we did is we, we collared the coyotes and then once we had GPS data on them, we could identify the areas in their territories where they used the most core areas, if you will. And we went into those areas real time while we were simultaneously tracking the, you know, these animals and we collected scat from within that core area of the territory. And, and previous research has shown genetically using genetic markers that almost all of the scat that is, that you find in the core of these territories is from that breeding pair. It's not from transients because again, transients aren't going into those areas because of, of strife. So, so we went in every month, we'd go into these territories and we would collect scat and then we would analyze it to see, you know, for prey remains, you basically wash all the fecal material out of it, which is a lot of fun by the way. (laughs) Yeah, it sounds um, like it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then um, and then we would just literally just sit down in the lab and sort through the remains and figure out what it was, whether it was hair. We would key the hair out to species to figure out what we were looking at. Specific to deer, you know, you can look at the, the diameter of the hair and you can tell whether you're looking at, a, at an adult or a fawn. So we would do that if there was any doubt. In a lot of cases, it was there was no doubt. I mean, you could tell from the, the hair itself, just looking at it, that it was certainly an adult or certainly a fawn. But if we had doubts, we would, we would verify it. And we did that for all 12 months of the year for, it was over 25 breeding pairs. I, I can't remember exactly how many it was, but it was a lot of information. And um, yeah, and the, the findings were pretty clear. Like I said, they're, they're consuming a lot of deer. Yeah. What, I mean, what percentage, I guess, of their diet was, was made up of deer. And I, I assume it probably varied throughout the year, but. It did. And, and essentially what we saw was that um, there was a consistent amount of, of deer. It never went below a certain amount. Um, and basically but then what you would see is, you know, when fawns became available, for instance, then all bets were off. You know, I mean, when you when fawns hit the ground, the the frequency of occurrence would dramatically would dramatically increase. Um, I'm actually sitting here while I'm talking to you. I'm going to pull it up and look. I don't I don't remember the number off the top of my head, the average, but um, but it was it was substantial. Um yeah, I mean, the frequency of occurrence was, it was about, uh, it was about 35 to 45% on average. So nearly half on average of their diet was, was white-tailed deer. Wow. Yeah, and, and, and as you'd expect, in some months, it was dramatically higher, you know, when you got into, when you got into the summer and when you got into the fall, you know, it, it peaked, but it was consistent throughout the year that, that I'm sitting here looking at the the numbers now it was actually um only one month was it below 30 percent so they're they're eating a lot of deer and they're eating a lot of deer all year any feel for you know how many deer would a would an average coyote consume in a year i mean we we actually we actually did look at that we and it's it's i'm not going to say it's 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 biased but basically what you do is you can take uh you can take 
the information from SCAD and you could try to predict, you know, about how many animals out is that. Um, and what you, what you end up seeing is that it dramatically differed among groups. So in, you know, this pair of coyotes, they may not have eaten, they may not have eaten many deer at all. Um, the average was about, and if you're metrically challenged, it's, you know, the average was about 13 kilograms. So per month, which if you kind of think about that from the standpoint of, of, um, of how many fawns that is versus how many does, if that's representing fawns, it's a number of fawns. Oh yeah. If it's representing, you know, adults, it's not that many, you know, one, one animal or two animals, it, it would produce a lot. Um, but I mean, if you're taking, you know, one or two adults off of, off, you know, out of a population and you're taking a number of fawns out of a population, then it's easy to see that, you know, coyotes are, you know, are, are important to deer from a predation standpoint and their diet certainly suggests that. Did, did the numbers, when y'all started digging into this and, and looking at this, did, did those numbers surprise you or was that kind of already expected, I guess? It surprised, it surprised me. I, you know, we've always known that, that deer eat fawn. I mean, it, that coyotes eat fawns. I mean, we know that we've known that studies all over the East and Southeast clearly show it. I wasn't surprised at all to see the occurrence of fawns. I was surprised to see the occurrence of adults. And, and in particular in February and March, those were the two months that stuck out to me as being pretty interesting because we saw about 40% frequency of occurrence. So a lot of scats were contained deer in those two months. And Mm. I, I expected to see what we saw in the fall, which you see these big spikes and in consumption of deer in the fall, whether that's, you know, hunter killed deer, wounded deer, whatever it is, they're eating it. But February and March on our study sites, was after the, the the hunting season had ended and it was far after season had ended and, you know, in two of the States. So it was surprising to see that much consumption of adult deer well after the hunting season. Why is that? My assumption is that they're preying on animals that are, you know, that had a really difficult winter that are run down. I don't know that, but logically that's what I would assume that, you know, you've got animals that coming out of breeding season and they're stressed and they're run down and, and coyotes are taking advantage of that. And that would explain that, that bump, if you will, in February and March. Right. Well, I guess, you know, ba- based on a- everything you've kind of laid out here, as far as, you know, the transients replacing residents when they're, when they're killed, um, I guess what what does how does that bode for for hunting and trapping coyotes to try to improve deer numbers? Is, is there any? Uh, I mean, is there is there any way you can have an impact on on coyotes on your property enough to where you know you could you could bolster your your fawn recruitment or, or improve your deer population? Oh yeah, I mean you just have to understand that the timing is going to be important and the intensity of removal would be important because if, if you're trapping way, you know, far ahead of fawning season, for instance, and your goal is to positively impact fawn recruitment, then you're, you're not going to have a net effect if you trap too far in advance because transients are just going to fill the void that you create and they, they may, they will do it quickly. So it speaks to the need. If, if you're interested in trapping, to try to time it, if it's legal, try to time it, you know, just before fawning occurs. Um, if your goal is just to reduce coyote abundance, you know, good luck. Um, <laughs> you, you, yeah. that's, a, that's, a, that's an annual project that needs to be intensive and repeated because that's what it, that's what it takes to to reduce coyote abundance. And, and you just have to understand that their, their ecology sets them up to being able to respond to, to management efforts very quickly. And if you know that ahead of time, you can plan accordingly. 
and make sure your your trapping is is surgical and targeted. Yeah, and and I assume the the I guess the bigger the scale you can do that on, whether it be through you know cooperative cooperatively working with with neighboring landowners and that kind of stuff, but but the better with uh, yeah for know. sure yeah because they're they're using in most cases they're using more property than any of us own. So, you know, you're sharing coyotes with your neighbors for sure. So if you're, if you're trying to manage relatively small properties, you have your work cut out for you. Uh, if you, if you have a larger property and you can get your neighbors to also cooperate, your chances of success are much better. And you, you need to be thinking about other things that are influencing your deer population, particularly, you know, the habitat that you have available to them. This research has shown that for many species, managing predators may be a waste of time if you if you don't have habitat conditions that are appropriate for the animal. But they can be much more effective if you do. So, you know, I typically tell people spend as much time as you're thinking about spending trapping and as much money and put that towards improving habitat on the property. And and what would what would that look like? What I guess what kind of um, what kind of habitat is gonna I guess give your give your fawns and your deer the best uh, best opportunity to avoid predation from coyotes? Well, what what we found pretty clearly was that coyotes that that had more open areas in their in their home ranges were able to eat more deer, and that's that's not a shock. If you if you have areas that are open where coyotes can chase deer, then they they have an advantage. Um, you know, I I talk a lot about I get asked this rarely from the deer's perspective, mostly from a turkey's perspective. But if you look at how deer respond to predation threats, they run and hide. You know, so cover is important to them. And if you look at how a turkey, you know, they watch and they they just run away and they fly if they have to. So fundamentally they're they're different critters from a deer's perspective, you know, having available cover where they can escape is important because once they escape into that cover, they have the advantage. You've got a dog that, you know, weighs thirty five pounds, doesn't stand that tall. If you put them in dense cover, they they're at a disadvantage compared to a deer that can navigate easily through that. So it just speaks to the notion of ensuring that you have suitable cover, um, which in, in most areas we have cover. It may not be suitable cover, but right. we have a lot of cover. We have dense forests, unfortunately, way too dense in many places. But just just speaking to the need of of having cover, uh, you know, fawning fawning is a is a tricky situation because the the fawns they start making their own decisions, you know, and they start moving around on their own at times. And that, that's, you know, that's tricky because then it's their behavior may, may end up putting them in a bad position. But the other thing from a management perspective is try to, you know, try to have parturition dates that are consistent and, and, and not prolonged where you've got fawns hitting the ground, you know, all over the map. If you can do that, then you do end up with some with some swamping of your you know of your predators where you've got fawns everywhere and a coyote can't possibly eat them all. So you know, and you I'm sure you've talked about with other guests how to you know just managing density on your property and making sure that that you're trying to you know have these more narrow parturition dates. That's that's important for right. for for predation as well. Right. Yeah. And and speaking of fawns, there, I mean, there's really I mean, obviously they they can be eaten at any time, but there there's really a, a narrow window there in there where they're where they're way more susceptible to predation than than the rest of the rest of the year. I mean, that first how long first is that week period? or so? Yeah, okay. yeah, the first week or so is is the critical period. Once they once they're up and moving around and can flee, they their survival increases dramatically. It's that it's that first couple of weeks that's tough. And once they're, of course, once they're up and moving around with mom, their survival is much higher. It's it's that period when they're they're hanging around on their own, waiting for mom to return to them. You know, that's when that's when it's tough. And 
Um, and that we see that and you see that all over the country with, you know, with fawn survival studies is that first couple of weeks, if you don't lose them during that period, their survival's pretty good. Yeah. Well, talking about, you know, their, their uh, deer's susceptibility and, and more open areas, it got me thinking, I, I mean, you think we're doing the, the coyotes a favor, I guess, by, uh, you know, we all love to plant those food plots and, and I'm just as guilty as anybody else, but you, know, you love to plant those areas for deer and, and concentrate them. Or, you know, in some cases, you know, there's a lot of baiting going on, at least here in the, the Southeast. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm guessing that that uh, just makes it all much, much easier for uh, for coyotes to prey on these deer. Yeah. I mean, in some ways we don't know. There, there's ongoing research looking at, at this. And, you know, logically you would think if you concentrate animals somewhere that, you could influence predation. Uh, I don't think many logical people would argue that. What's the impact? We don't really know with certainty. You know, coyotes, and I'm sure you've seen this too, predation is a complex thing. I, I've sat and, you know, watched deer, watch coyotes. I've, I've had coyotes walk through food plots and deer not even run off, just stand there and watch. Um, I've, I've got pictures at at feeders of of turkeys standing within eight or ten feet of coyotes. It, it's a very complex situation, and I, you know, when it comes to food plots and and that type of thing, we don't see a lot of coyote activity around really small openings like that. They tend to use the the bigger, the broader openings. Think, you know, like a. A 500 acre clear cut that's two years, you know, regenerating. That's okay. prime coyote. That's prime coyote habitat. So we we don't see a lot of activity on these smaller these smaller type areas. And if you think about it, that makes sense from their perspective because the more area they have to chase, the better off for them. So if they can run and chase, they have a better shot than if they're trying to 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 surge after something and catch it. Yeah, right. that's 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 a bobcat uh, tactic. You know, sit and wait, sit and wait, and then pounce. Coyotes don't do that. They move constantly, and they use their their vision and their nose and their ears to figure out, you know, where they're going to head. So, I personally don't. If you look at the GPS data, you don't see a, a ton of use in little bitty tiny food plots. You know, it, it's gotcha. typically larger open areas. Okay. Yeah, that's good to know. And, and those. In those bigger clear cuts, like you're talking about, I mean, do they actually get out and, and work through those, or is it more working the edges of those? Or they'll use all of of those. Okay. But, I mean, obviously, you do see, you know, some disproportionate use around roads, and you know, and that's actually, you know, that's prime trapping locations and larger clear cuts. It's just intersections and roads and places where they're they're traveling. The thing that sets them up to be able to hunt you know, those, those bigger cut areas like that. It's just the fact that they can, they can walk the roads and they can smell, they can use their scent so effectively because everything is down on ground level, you know, um, that becomes important to them. Okay. Well, before we, uh, wrap things up here, is there, is there anything I missed regarding coyotes and, and your coyote research that, that may be of interest to the listeners or, or any final thoughts you want to share? No, I mean, I think we've covered everything. If, you know, if somebody's interested in, in the work and they want to, they want to see things we've published, you know, from it, feel free to reach out to me. I'd be happy to provide it. We've, you know, we've published some papers out of that study and and actually we just published a paper recently that where we look at some of these recursive movements. In other words, we see the coyotes revisit areas within their ranges pretty routinely. And those places you'd think are really prey rich. So we we're starting to try to tease out what is it about these areas where they keep going back to that could be different. And we're just, we're just sorting that out now, but, but yeah, I mean, if somebody's interested, re- reach out to me and, you know, by email or on social media, and I'd be happy to provide the information to you. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And if any of that, is actually published online we can we can certainly include the links to that stuff in the in the show it notes is. as well okay it, yep it sure is yep yeah so we'll I'll, I'll get that from you and we'll in, include that in the show notes where they can check that out and uh yeah i just i appreciate your time 
always en- enjoy these talks and uh, always walk away learning something new. So for the listeners who might want to keep up with you and kind of what you're doing and, and some of the research that, that you share online, which I know you share, you share a lot of turkey stuff. I always enjoy keeping up with that. Uh, but but what's the what's the best way for them, I guess, to keep up with you? Yeah, probably, you know, if, if you're on social media, just um, on Instagram or Twitter, it's it's at Wild Turkey Doc. It's Wild Turkey D-O-C. Uh, and I post information on, on those platforms every week. I also post on Facebook, but it's just my name. If you just search on Michael Chamberlain, you'll, you'll find me. Um, and I, I do, I have in the past posted some coyote stuff. I, I haven't recently. Uh, I probably will once we get this, this manuscript sorted out, because I think people will really be interested in, in that stuff. But, uh, but yeah, you can check me out on those platforms. And if you don't do any of that, uh, if you just go to UGA's, you know, homepage and you search on my name, you can find my email address and you can shoot me an email and I may not respond immediately, but I will respond. Sometimes it just takes time to go yeah. through messages and stuff, but, uh, I'm, I'm usually pretty good at eventually circling back with people. Well, good deal. Again, I appreciate your time and, uh, and good luck this spring. Same to you. <laughs> yep. Take care. Yep. All right, guys, that wraps up our interview with Dr. Michael Chamberlain. Uh, Thanks so much for checking out this episode of the Deer Season 365 podcast. If you haven't already, please consider subscribing to the show. You know, you can find us on all the popular podcasting platforms like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and and several more. So about anywhere you could listen to to podcasts, you should be able to find us there. Uh, Or you can just go to DeerAssociation.com slash podcast and subscribe directly from our website. Uh, Hey, we'd also love it if you take just a second to leave us a five-star rating or a written review. You know, those both help us uh, climb the the podcasting charts and be more visible to, uh, to future listeners. So we would appreciate any support you could give us there. For more information about the National Deer Association, you can visit our website again at deerassociation.com. From there, you can sign up for our free weekly newsletter you can become a member and don't forget about that podcast promo code that we talked about at the beginning of the show to get you a little bit of a discount on an annual membership and that free NDA hat. So be sure to take advantage of that and uh, hey, just enjoy some of our several hundred articles of, of free content right there on our website covering everything from hunting strategy to food plots, habitat improvement, um, deer management, you name it. Uh, if it's deer hunting or deer management related, we got some good content right there on our website available to you. So check that out. And of course, you can always find us on all the popular social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube at Deer Association. So again, thanks for listening to the Deer Season 365 podcast, the podcast where deer season never ends.